Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Welcome to the Classical Queer Podcast. Thanks for finding us and listening to this month's interview. Coming up on the show, we are joined by the charming and talented Rosenegger Tremblay, based in Montreal, Canada. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Rose and listening to her wonderful voice and some of her own compositions. Well, welcome to our uh, newest installment of our podcast. We're here and joined by Rose Negar Tremblay, who is a wonderful vocalist we get to talk to today. Um, and so, Rose, we always kind of start with a uh, a bio or a bit of a background or, or whatever. We, we've kind of found that I can read something, but it's much more compelling if you tell us about yourself a bit. Um, so Sammy and I would love to hear uh, kind of your, your background, where you are from, what you do, where you studied, your art, anything you want to tell us. And then we, we have a bunch of questions for you, but we'll start there. Yeah, it might go in all directions. <laughs> well, I, I think I need to start by saying that I am very, very Montreal based. I did all of my training in Montreal. I, uh, and I went to McGill University, Cégep de Saint-Laurent before that. Uh, preparatory School of Music at the Lucam University of Quebec in Montreal. Um, and then I did the Young Artist Program. Sorry, I'm going kind of backwards in time and then forward to the last step, which is the Young Artist Program at the Opéra de Montréal that I graduated last year. So, but I think it resembles who I am as a person that I build myself from a center out. Uh, and Montreal definitely is my center. The first time I'm journeying into Europe uh, this year. How exciting! That's that's fantastic. <laughs> and so you were you were born in Montreal, I'm guessing. Yes. What's your uh, because I because I have an affinity for Montreal. What's your what's your neighborhood? Where were you? Where did you grow up? Uh, so I'm from the east of Montreal, Petroville, key town for the intimates. <laughs> but I currently <laughs> live in the village, with it, which is fantastic such a lovely area. My uh, partner is from Beaconsfield, so West Island, and grew up uh, in Beaconsfield and then downtown. Um, so that's that's fantastic. And that's the part I don't know. <laughs> I know. He's from the Anglophone side, so that's yeah. a oh, why. It's it's a divided city, I guess. I was in I was in Montreal once uh, on a on a meet on a conference, and I got stopped by somebody. There was a bunch of us, and this this French speaking uh, Montreal person came up and said. What do, you, what do you call somebody who speaks three languages? And we looked and he said, trilingual. And then he said, what do you keep, uh, call somebody who speaks two languages? And we said, bilingual. And he went, yes. And what do you call somebody who speaks one language? And we looked and we tried to guess something. And he said, ah, oh, American, and then walked off. And that was it. That was the <laughs> end. That was my introduction to Montreal Canadian, I think it was. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> There's a lot of teasing going around with the language thing. <laughs> Yes, there is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's that's fantastic. So you uh you did the the McGill uh program and then Cegep and um and you just finished you said the the Montreal Opera program. Yes. And so now you're in Europe uh doing I think you said you were doing an audition tour, correct? Yes, it's quite massive honestly. I don't know how this happened, but a lot of things are happening kind of a 
on the swift of, I don't know, like on the, um, the wind is turning really fast because of the pandemic. Uh, yeah. I was supposed to be back in Montreal in mid-January to sing with the uh, symphonic orchestra, Montreal Symphonic Orchestra, and we had to postpone the performance. But so then I told my agent, uh, well, I, I can stay for a few more days if you manage to book a, like one or two auditions. And he ended up booking like 12. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where are you on this? Where are you going on this tour? Started in Germany. I did a few cities in Germany and I came to France, did a, a lot of cities in France. And I went to Madrid this week, went back to Germany came back to France for a few more, and then I'm going to Geneva next week. And oh, Sound. very exciting, I just heard that I will be back in um, Sofia uh, to sing Carmen again. I sang Carmen this fall in, I think, October, was it? <laughs> yes, uh, and it was my first Carmen with orchestra. It was really thrilling and exciting wow. and very uh, happy to go back. You've just got to love Carmen. I mean, it's just one of those things you just really love to listen to. It's kind of, you know, just so flamboyant and exciting. And, you know, yes. you just want to sing. Al I always want to sing along to it. It's kind of it's kind of a fantastic you know, piece of music. I, I can't imagine what it must be like to, to actually be Carmen. It must be really, really fun. It's liberating. It's uh, so rooted in pop culture and in acting. And so I find that when I perform Carmen, I don't think about my technique anymore i just think about being free because this is really the, the essence of the character hmm. that's a wonderful way to think about that it's funny like i i as a i as a conductor i want to hate carmen like i want to because it because it's so well known and it's so yeah. like done and then i listen to it and i can't i have to love it it's so beautiful <laughs> it's so exciting it's so like captivating and every time uh, and this is not to say about the performance that we were talking about that i i did actually see you uh do a number of years ago but like i always walk into carmen and say like oh, well, i'm a carmen again blah, blah, blah. and then you know, <laughs> five minutes in i love it it's great it's fantastic i can't help yeah. myself well congrats that's that's very exciting that's good yeah fantastic. thank you fantastic Last summer, I, I, I actually did a hip hop version of Carmen. I'm sorry, Sammy. <laughs> oh, hip hop, really? Yes, yes. It was really fun. I, that's why I say with Carmen is so rooted in pop culture is that you can you can really redo it in any um, pop influenced version of itself. Like I've heard a, a, I think it was a flamenco Carmen and this this uh, hip hop Carmen with a rapper singing well oh. rapping the part of Escamillo was fantastic. Amazing. That is fantastic. Yeah, you, I, I read something on your blog because you, you sort of mentioned this about how <clears throat> I guess the pandemic has affected you a little bit with your changing plans. Yes. And I, I, I read that in your blog, you put something about how this the lockdown had affected you, um, you know, sort of personally at, at a level. Uh, yes, I can't remember what I said in the blog, though. I mean, it affected me. It, I grew. I think I grew so much during these past like two years now uh so there were definitely cycles of uh, uh of um challenges i think the the first year for me was um i think it just lit me on fire i could kind of feel my career drift away i felt like it because it was the year i was it was the moment where i was supposed to graduate from the atelier lyric 
I was supposed to launch myself in the world and I was very ready and eager to be on stage. Like so many musicians and so many artists kind of had the, I, I like many describe it as having the rug pulled out from under them. You know, there was so much uh, potential progress happening in people's lives and to have everything kind of taken away so suddenly. Um, and you were talking about what that, that felt like for you. Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, it's at, at first. I, oh, yes, I do remember now what I, I think I wrote on my blog. I, I write so much on so many different platforms that sometimes I look I lose track. But the um, what I, I realized this summer is that I hadn't really cried. Uh, everything happened so fast. Everything was taken away so fast. And we were kind of thrown into resilience mode right away. It was like, get back up or see your career die <laughs> or that's how it felt at least um so i pushed i really pushed through i did an entrepreneurial competition i i, I built this uh language teaching practice online so that i could support myself where when my contracts would be taken away and then from time to time the contracts would all come back rushing because everybody when when in quebec we had the um, permission to open the halls then everybody wanted to do their productions at the same time so when these periods happened i was still teaching and i had to bring my performance uh, practice back up in like a moment and this was extremely challenging very very tiring and so by the time i got to actually sing carmen this fall uh, in sofia when i left the show I realized how much I had almost given up, like mm. the love I had for being on stage, being with colleagues, singing with orchestra. <laughs> Gosh, I, I hadn't sang in, with orchestra since before the pandemic. So it was it was just a thrill. And then it actually kind of threw me into, a, I, I don't want to say a depression, but definitely kind of a very dark space for a moment. I mean, when you were having this period when you couldn't sing with an orchestra, and I guess, you know, people were doing things um, by Zoom and, and all the other yeah. things. I mean, as a non-musical type, how did you keep yourself focused or, or trained or practiced? I mean, I guess you could do some yourself, but but I guess it's not the same as singing with other people and an orchestra. So how did you go about that? Well, I went, the, the good thing that happened for my singing is that I reconnected with a teacher I had met at the Atelier Lyrique, who actually is based in Stockholm. And um, I never thought that I could study with her on a regular basis. Uh, I used to see her only once or twice a year. But then I was supposed to do the summer program and she was uh, uh, teaching online. And then we realized that the Zoom teaching was fantastic and it allowed me to see her every week and to and see her in a very intimate way because I can bring my phone up to my mouth and there is no you know like and she can see literally everything that's happening <laughs> and there's it's it's safe it's comfortable to do that with your phone so like I, I guess we we've really developed a, a strong relationship and it was a very my practice became very uh, uh, introverted and. Um, self-sufficient in a way it was almost more meditative i i started doing my singing right after yoga every day and i sang i think i should i should say i sang for the 
whole pandemic sitting on the floor. I don't think I sang once standing on my feet, but it was so good. It was grounding. There's there's something so lovely about like the word grounding, like bringing everything back and and centering and 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 rooting yourself in, like both your practice, but the the physicality of like rooting yourself on the ground. And it, I mean, it reminds me so much of you know in in my own kind of like world and research in like kind of queer music making. We talk so much about like embodiment and position positionality and like feeling things so personally. And you know, I mean, Sammy and I have talked on the podcast with like trans vocalists and talking about like how the body feels to sing as as a person and like how that translates to where you are physically on that day, your body, how yes. you're feeling. And it's such a, it's an important part of music making. And I I never ever want to give like, because I, I, I just hate the narrative of like, the, the pandemic is terrible, but look at this positive that has come out of it because, you know, there's not really a whole lot of positives, but like it has given people some opportunity to, through a terrible situation <laughs> like reconnect with like how am i singing how am i creating how am i you know making my art if you've if you've had to fight for your chance to be an artist in the sense of uh, really persevering through you know sometimes it gives you a different perspective positive or negative it, it isn't really either but it gives you this chance to think about do I fight through? Am I fighting through? Do I yeah. want to continue <laughs> and how? And so I think, you know, that happened for many people, but you were saying just sitting on the floor and singing really connected you and grounded you. Yes, I think it was for everyone, it forced us to reconnect with what was in intrinsically motivating to us um, because all of the external motivation kind of was taken away so and i'm not saying that uh it was an easy thing to do sometimes we are completely disconnected to what is what brings us joy basically sometimes like we we want to make it into a world so much into an industry or into a way of living uh a, um frame uh, of existence that we we don't feel the nuance I think of our emotions and to me that's really what happened during that period it was a forced slow down uh, and I reconnected to what I had power over because I the big feeling when that all hit us is how how much we felt like powerless so it was very important to reconnect to what we could do and that's always the way I guess I I find my way back up when when I hit the times of trouble. Mm. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting because, you know, throughout most of humanity, we've been at the mercy of everything around us. And now we feel we've got control over everything. And then something comes along like the pandemic, which suddenly we don't have. And, and I don't know, it kind of makes you somewhere here feel so differently about the world and, and that. And I guess that's your grounding and, and, and the way you react to it. It reminds me. I mean, and we'll 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 talk about it. This is why we're here, so talk about your your pieces and your music. But I mean, so we're going to talk about about healing, which Yay. I'm assuming is drawn from this sensation and this feeling that you wrote this, co-wrote this with um, uh, Eric Champagne. Is that who it is? Yes. Yes. Um, yes. 
and it's I mean, maybe maybe tell us about where that comes from and and how that connects to this feeling. Well, it's it's so funny because I actually started working on healing a year before the pandemic hit. Mm. Um, it was a <laughs> yeah, about almost uh, premonitory, <laughs> um, <laughs> and <laughs> it it was actually to get me through some mental health challenges uh, that were always linked to the performing world for me. And I should say that I started performing as soon as I could stand up. Like I, I, I was doing dance and acting when I was a kid. And, and I said to my parents very early on that I wanted to be a singer. I actually wanted to be a singer songwriter, picked up the piano. And then, so I really grew up on all stages many many different kind of stages and so it's difficult to uh understand for me where the performance anxiety started because i was always a performer so i'm not sure if it's performance anxiety or if it's basically anxiety or but i think i'm a i'm a very sensitive person that's probably what drew me to the arts um and and i crash from time to time <laughs> i have you know so it's like sometimes there's an overload of information in my nervous system and it crashes um and this this one the one right before i started writing healing was a very big one because it was after like after one year in the professional world i was under a lot of pressure and i felt lost i felt like i was not connected to my true voice my my true like my real physical voice and also my artistry. Um, mm. And uh, it was it was a confusing time too um, because I actually had just uh, come out to my family. Um, it's funny because I grew up in a circle of friends with whom it was always very easy and comfortable to speak of who I liked and, and my sexual orientation, but also just don't feel like, I didn't even feel like I had to label it uh, growing mm. up, but it was not something that I felt like um, I could address with my parents, not that they were not open to it, but I think it's the thing with uh, being fluid in my sexuality is that I could always kind of avoid the conversation. And uh at this moment it became unavoidable <laughs> and uh it and it actually went very well it it went very well uh, especially with i should say with my grandmother who i was the most afraid of i was so afraid of telling her because we are extremely close and she is very religious and i was afraid that it was going to create a um, distance between the two of us but i think it if anything it brought us closer together so mm. But the, it was just a stressful period. It all went really, really well, but my anticipation of it made me very tired. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had very little resistance to whatever other stressor was in my life at that point. And at some point I just collapsed, physically collapsed. I got sick, my back locked, I couldn't breathe anymore. And I was supposed to perform and I, I, I really, I think my whole body gave out. Um, and I asked for help. I was in Toronto at that point. I was housed by um, a music, how do you say, the Mécène uh, patron of the arts. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, and <laughs> I just 
I arrived at her home and I couldn't lift my own luggage. And I think that's kind of symbolic too of the state I was in. So she's like, I, I don't want to reveal her age, but she she has more life experience than I do. And she had to carry my luggage inside because I couldn't lift it up any, anymore. And she just put me she put me in a bath, like she put me in a bath, she gave me a glass of wine and she kind of nursed me back to health for a week. And it was almost like accepting to be parented again. Uh, but I was, I was not, I was 26 at the time, you know, I was not a kid anymore, but I, at that point in my life, I needed a parent and she, she lended that to me for a week. Um, and because I could not sing anymore, I literally couldn't sing and I didn't feel like singing, I reconnected with my passion for writing. Uh, and the first poem that I wrote was actually the one that's the third uh, poem in this song cycle. And it was a thank you letter to her for for helping me out. Um, and then all of the other poems came during maybe this period of six months where I stopped putting myself in a position where I needed to perform. Like sometimes I still had to be on stage because I was on contract, but I just did not expect anything from myself for about six months. I was just like, I'm going to rebuild that voice. And I was accompanied by a wonderful voice teacher in Montreal, Ariane Girard, who is now impossible to get an appointment with because she is so good. Everybody wants to study with her. <laughs> and I think she is definitely a miracle worker for reconnecting people to their true physical voice, like the, the real vocal emission. Um, and she she really helped me find that alignment. And and during that period, I wrote, I only wrote poems, and that was my intrinsic motivation. That was the one thing that kept me kept me uh, going. And then I was on a travel to Germany. I was doing some uh, coachings there. And as I was walking on the streets, some melodies started coming up in my mind just uh, on the poem and I would recite the poem every once in a while because they kept me company they were friends to me they they were like holding my my heart warm <laughs> mm. um uh oh yeah and I should say also if I wrote it in English because English is not my first language it's first mm. because the first poem was a thank you letter to her and she's an anglophone so the first poem was it was natural to write it in English. And then it's uh, when I was in McGill, I did a therapy <laughs> with, and the, my, my therapist was bilingual and I mm. noticed, uh, and she, she kept on repeating. I could, I was, I, I was free to do everything in French, but I noticed that because I'm a very, um, amicable person, I always wanted to say it in English so that it was easier for her. <laughs> um, but I noticed that it also made it easier for me. Like saying things in your second language or your third language, because sometimes I do write in Italian as well, um, it creates a distance with the pain. It's mm. like you're observing, instead of being the actor of what's going on, you are the poet describing the scene and just kind of making sense of it. And the the... The words don't have the same layer of meaning. I really do believe in um, uh, reprogramming yourself through 
a renewed ap approach of language. And I think every once in a while, it's good to borrow an identity. And when I speak in and live in another language, I feel like I'm free to rewire the connections that are not working for me anymore. Like inartistically and bluntly, as uh, my my partner, who is uh, anglophone but bilingual and grew up in in Quebec, um, always says when I travel, I I will I like unabashedly will speak whatever language of uh, whatever I'm in, even though it's so poor and like my French is so awful and he always says like you just become like a different person and you can't speak french that well i'm not bilingual i'm like <laughs> you know, like semi-bilingual but i have this weird confidence when i'm speaking french because it's not me i just like go and of course i can like communicate in you know norwegian if i'm in norway <laughs> like obviously i can do that totally. says, you just yeah. become this other person that is not you um and i find it empowering <laughs> but it's oh it's yes through. me too Travel, and I find but, that know. the later you have learned that language in your life, uh, the freer you are within the language. <laughs> it's like it's not connected to any earlier trauma. <laughs> mm. That's a good way to put it. I think, you know, he would not, I'll bring him out at some point, but like he would say, because he grew up speaking English and French, you know, he has uh, like a really different connection to French and there's, probably more trauma associated with speaking English and French together where I like really learned French later in life. And so I feel very loosey goosey and free with it. And uh, he doesn't understand that because it, it feels very connected to who he is because it's not I a new language that. to him. Yeah. 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 It, it's kind of, kind of interesting as somebody whose identity has changed a lot over, over their life. I kind of, you know, this idea of having, you know, your language, giving you a different freedom is kind of interesting and and you know the way it re relates to your body and mm -hmm. everything and your voice as somebody who oh, yeah. who hates hates their voice quite frankly mm -hmm. i mean I, I struggle with it and it's kind of it is kind of a you know, this identity question it, it's very much an identity you take on or you have and you you're trying to change it in some way and and kind of this is i guess this is the language thing as well it's it changes your you've got a, another layer of identity which you can hide behind yes well it's i guess it's kind of the language is a vessel and it changes shape and it goes at a different speed you know like when you it's a it's a third language you're not going to speak and think as fast as when it's your first language so the one sentence you manage to get in in a conversation is going to be important it's it's going to be done with care it's it's another rhythm and it's another and also the position of the language within your body is different like the sounds that we produce in english or the sounds that we produce in french and depending on what region you're from is a completely different sphere in your mouth <laughs> I, I I can see that. I mean, I, I have two voices. I have a, a, a my old voice, uh, which I occasionally drop into, and I have my new voice, which is kind of better, you know, and, and, it, and, and where it is in your body is completely different. And, yes, yes. and, and the sort of interaction with it is, is so different. And it, it, it is almost like you're, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a very weird, weird experience, but I can, I can kind of see how it relates to this language, language situation. Absolutely. And for me, like I was talking to you about reconnecting to my true voice, I don't want to say that there is a 
false and true and like there's only like a dichotomy of voices i think our voices are plural and they have so many colors and they can express so many refined emotions um but what i meant was allowing my voice to be full and have access to all of these colors and remember where the center is i think that is key when you're developing a voice is i i, I think you're absolutely right i mean i, I can't sorry i don't know about myself too much here but it kind of is interesting because i it's it's your your person your voice and your personality change together and 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 your freedom of expression and and mm -hmm. for me when i my new voice is i i feel much more expressive it's more connected than my old voice which was never connected so it's kind of i kind of it, it kind of matches and it's it's an interesting oh, yes. way of looking at it yeah for me the process was really about stop stopping to be it's interesting because it was stopping to be a kid my my owning my voice and it's interesting because at mm. the same time it's the moment where i learned to ask for help again but it's asking for help from a place of adulthood who's surrendering to their need and but before that i think i was very much pleading i was um and in my voice i made myself smaller because i'm a very tall person and i have a very big voice and uh, i think i've been told maybe one too many times that i was loud as a kid and then at some point i started be becoming precious yeah. with my voice and i started also even my speaking voice it just it was sitting a little bit here it was just in this higher position of trying to be nice and hi mm -hmm. and i hope everybody's well and you know i really don't want to bother <laughs> please feel free to tell me no <laughs> and the whole wow. process of the work i did with my teacher at the time marianne girard it was to allow my voice to be like connected to my chest voice connected to my my womanhood my you know my full physicality um and i remember her saying it's it's a bit of a feminist act to reclaim our chest voice as especially as classically trained singer because there are so many singers and so many schools of singing that tells you you should never chest um mm. and i think this is completely i don't want to say it but you know it's terrible it's bad <laughs> Bad advice. I, I mean, it, it's kind of it's my, my speech therapist is is a, a kind of in a similar way says, you know, um, uh, is that you know there's, there's too much emphasis put on the fact that you know a female voice has to be oh, up here somewhere and we have to it all has to be very oh light and as you say accompanying and very allowable and all this kind yeah. of thing, and and that's not how women speak they speak with a, a voice that can be down here it can be here yeah. it can be wherever it needs to be and, and it's kind of a it, it's kind of empowering to know it can be anywhere i guess it's it's a, it's yeah. a you know yeah so it's, it's yeah. a fascinating like yeah interesting the, i i love this process and one of the other thing that the pandemic gave me was time to teach uh, and explore people's vocal expression with them. And I, I just realized how much I loved it, honestly. It's like, because as you said earlier, it's so related to your identity, the way you express yourself. You know, singing is basically um, stylistic, either screaming, crying, or laughing. It's, it's connected to the same mechanism. It's the, the vocal expression of an emotion. It's, it's survival. It's its purest form. It's calling for help. It's, you know, like, uh, 
the the I was I, I read that recently. I cannot tell you where and the legitimacy of the source, <laughs> but that if the the human voice has so much harmonics in it that the orchestra can't match, it's because it developed to be able to call for help from miles away. So the mm. harmonics were made to be the, the the noise that cuts through the forest and through the land, so that mm. your fellow fellow humans can come to your yeah. aid. Yeah, a and, baby uh, crying. A baby crying has to a get baby cry. A baby crying mm. never tires. Mm. It never yeah. tires. It, 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 that's healthy singing right there. And that's actually one of the first exercises I do with my students is find their baby cry. Mm. Yeah. And and also, of course, your babies are in their, in their body. I mean, they're very connected as opposed to when you become an adult you sort of separate your voice you know if you become a become an adult you you, you separate yourself from your voice and and and, mm -hmm. and it kind of disconnects whereas you know babies are really in in their body and and the voice yeah. is so connected so i mean where do people hold most of their stress in their body is very much around the diaphragm and the jaw so mm -hmm. if you're if you're locked mm -hmm. in the jaw and you're locked in the diaphragm you cannot scream you're just gonna put a lot of pain in your throat. Well, I wow. think with that we should we should listen to some some singing. We should listen to <laughs> listen screaming. to healing. Yeah, sustained <laughs> screaming, healthy screaming. Um, yes. So uh, we'll hey, listen actually, to the whole thing. The first sentence of healing says that if my voice from afar feels like very powerful and and tall and powerful, it's actually just a collection of tiny little screams. Well, it's in French, so it makes more sense in French. I couldn't really translate it on the spot. <laughs> and what is it in French? Just say it uh, in French. Si lorsque je chante, ma voix semble grande et forte, elle n'est que l'assemblage frénétique d'une multitude de petits cris. It does work nicely in French. It's very beautiful language. Yeah, it sounds better in Everything sounds better in French. Well, the, the, the sentence was built in the right order. Sometimes I don't know why. When I think in English, I think kind of backwards. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand. So we'll, 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 we'll listen to some music. Yeah, fantastic. So. Si lorsque je chante, la voix semble grande et forte, elle n'est que l'assemblage frénétique d'une multitude de petits cris.
Did I ever stand a chance as it burst out of me with the wind of my mother and grandmothers and father and grandfathers? Did I ever stand a chance to stay home? If I Réfugié dans ta langue pour guérir de mes mots.
Comment aimer entièrement d'un cœur morcelé De ce que l'on donne à ce que l'on prend. Moulin avant.
le jour où j'arrêterai de perdre mes clés, je te ferai un double. Que je n'ai plus peur des départs. Je m'arrête un instant sur le porche et savoure. It's such a lovely piece. It, it it strikes me that every every movement has uh, like a little bit of a different feel or style or or vibe or uh, like a, like any true good song cycle, obviously. But it it's just so pleasant to listen to, no matter what version of style you kind of work through. And so, like I I as a, like a selfish musician. I always want to know, like, what was the the process of writing? Like, like, how did you um, 
how did you arrive at the the final piece together? It's it was such a fantastic journey, and it's it's great that you're asking because I just it made me realize that I started telling you about it earlier, and then I got lost somewhere in the process. <laughs> <laughs> but so uh, when I was telling you earlier, I was at the point where I was walking in Berlin. And I was reciting the poems to myself because I felt lonely and I needed to have a friend along. And that's what the poems were for me. And as I recited them, the rhythm of my speech uh, just kind of naturally inspired uh, melodies. And that's how I write my songs. I'm a very uh, Renaissance composer as a singer-songwriter, which is like I base all of my melodies on the prosody of the text. And sometimes the prosody is wrong, especially like in healing. I've noticed in a few spots when I was coaching with anglophones, because I did coach it later on, uh, they told me, you know, the tonic accent is a bit odd there. And then I told them, but that's how I speak it. <laughs> so the, the fun thing is healing is a francophone's tale said in English, and it shows somehow in the music. <laughs> um, and so, yes, yeah, so I then I, I had these tunes in my head. Um, and I had never composed for my classical voice before. I only composed for my singer-songwriter voice, which, which is, should be the same, but it wasn't at the time. <laughs> now it's, it feels more like the same voice. Um, and and uh, But those melodies felt bigger than the singing-songwriting. Not, not that singing-songwriting is a smaller art form, but it, it just felt like it was a bigger gesture, bigger expression, bigger sentiment from... Uh, and it, just like I was saying earlier, singing is a bit of a cry or a, a, a scream. Um, sometimes it can be a whisper, and that's what a lot of my songs are. But these 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 melodies didn't feel like they were whispered. They felt like they needed to be uh, shouted out into the world. That they were like a, a cry for help, and a, and yeah, um, it, they were kind of the tale of my life at the point because my life was a big cycle of falling down and getting back up and falling down and getting back up which is life for most people I think. but uh, yeah so walking in german uh, and then berlin getting the, the tunes in my head and i started playing them at the piano and for me at that moment they were kind of bluesy that's what i was playing mm. um but then i so i love eric champagne's music i i've been a huge fan of him for a while, um, and he had composed a song based of one of my poems during the summer before uh, we composed Healing. And so we, I already knew he had some affinity with my words. Um, and so I got in touch with him again, and I told him, do you want to do something crazy? Like, do you, would you like to co-compose something? I have melodies, and so far what I play on the piano is basically just a simple blues, but I'd be really interested to see what that would mean to you. And the big thing I told him was healing talks a lot about the rupture between the artists and their art that happens when you are under too much pressure. Mm -hmm. um, it's like the pressure point of having to perform breaks that special link you've always had with your art. It's not that safe space anymore. It's just kind of this public space that needs to be polished at all time. Um, and so I thought that by having two composers look at the music, we could also exemplify two separate languages. And 
uh, we we wanted to have that in the construction of the piece uh, that at first the first piece feels like they are two dial like a dialogue they are two voices the piano has a voice and it's like the voice of the music that can express sometimes inner sentiments that are not worded in the lyrics and then the the lyrics tell the tale of the singer the, the performer the, the and the and throughout the the cycle, sometimes they join back, uh, and sometimes they split again. And at the end, we w really wanted to have a more formal art song, which is the fifth uh, uh, movement uh, that feels like a reconciliation. To me, it's Andy music made the modern. <laughs> it's you know, it's like these chords, slow chords, uh, supporting this tune of, hey, thank you. <laughs> So, so can I can I ask when you when you you discussed this with him? Did you say after you you'd had the discussion? You said, "Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do something." Did you sort of say, <laughs> "Okay, here you go," and then he came back with it, and 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 here it is, or did you continuously interact as you went along? So I should say that he didn't say yes right away. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't take him long, but he was he was a bit puzzled by this. It was like it's not something. I've ever done as a composer, like to co-compose something. And I told him, oh, right, that's not something we do in classical music. Because I come from the singing songwriting world where I basically always write songs, put chords underneath and then send it to my musicians and <laughs> they arrange it. So, you know, like for me, it's it's normal to create in teams. Mm. Uh, but then he 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 got into the <laughs> into the project. And so the the first thing he forced me to do was to actually put it down on paper. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> like, at first I, I recorded them on my phone. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> uh, so that was good, and and it, it brought me back to my music theory. It, it, it was it was, and I I hand wrote it because I couldn't figure out the logistics of the, of writing on the computer. I'm really really. Um, challenged by technology <laughs> um, and then also the other thing he challenged me to do was to add some French into it um, he I told him what I told you earlier that English felt like a refuge uh, where I could hide away for a moment and he said well aren't you better now I said yes so he was like well maybe you know you can get closer mm. to, to yourself by adding some French into it and kind of completing the journey so I thought that the, that was a brilliant challenge, and those became the small interactions, the small uh, declaimed text uh, in between the songs that are kind of a, it's like a later on comment on where I was when I wrote the poetry. Mm. So mm. maybe like a year after how I felt about that subject matter at the time. When I finally sent him all of the music written, he kind of left with it and did his own thing. I did send a few samples and ideas and we did have a big conversation about the overall form of it, but I really wanted it to be his voice. That's also mm -hmm. something I like I think to the core I am a collaborative artist and that's also how I feel with my the musicians I collaborate with uh, in pop music. Um I don't want I don't want them to try to expand my own voice. I really want to see how our imaginary worlds can interact and uh, and and respond to each other. Uh, so yes, I I really wanted to see, and it was 
so emotional. I cannot tell you how emotional I got when I first read through the first movement with my pianist, Julien Leblanc. It was mm. such a special moment. So you liked it then. That was the good thing. I mean, that's the positive thing. It went, it went well. Oh, yes. <laughs> but I chose him because I knew it was an artist I admired so much. And I knew he treated the, the words in a very sensitive way. And we did a lot of uh, outreach activities together as well. And um, I don't know. I, I just felt like I was the perfect person to do this project with. Um, and yes, every the funny thing is I had never seen this score before like I for me the, the last time I had seen that music was a simple line he I didn't even send him the chords I had written it was just like you do you <laughs> here's the mm -hmm. melody <laughs> have fun and it was not broken when I learned it it was like a continuous uh, not learned it when I sang it it was a continuous mm -hmm. piece um so when I received the score you know I'm like when we sight read it, it's never perfect from the first time, right? It's like if I was reading a, a Schubert art song, there would be a, there would be a little bit of figuring it out and starting from the beginning and all that. But the funny thing is that the music was so familiar that mm. I could just right away fit into what he had created in the piano, and it, so it was a live discovery. It was not like I was challenged with trying to fit my voice into something I don't understand or didn't know yet. It's like I knew it without knowing it. Mm. Yeah. And he okay. that's the brilliancy of his composition as well because he 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 started from the melodies and created like inversions and patterns and really he created a language that was completely based upon what I had given him and that's I heard him say that it forced him out of his comfort zone as well because mm. uh, he, he started with a very, very specific content. I, I mean, obviously you, you had this and you started to sing it through. When you first performed it, when you first did it on stage and had to go on, tell us a little bit about that because I can imagine that would have been a, a fantastically emotional moment. I mean, I, I can... Oh, yes, you know, it I, was. I could sort of see it would be... I can I can sort of see it be difficult to sort of you know control it to get your voice and all this. So how was that? How was that moment? Well, the fun part is that you know the the creation was postponed I think three times before because of the pandemic, um, mm. and because of that, I got ready and that let it sit, and that got ready again and then let it sit. So I. Okay. You know, when something is really emotional to you, you just need to cry it through. Like you cry it through a few mm. times for yourself. You sing it at home. You sing it for friends. You sing, and then after a while, you you get past the point where you need to cry when you sing it. And also, I find that the most emotional performances are when you just stand right at the edge. It's like you just stand right at the edge of at edge of the precipice. And then when you stand right there and you hold your ground, you allow the audience to fall, let themselves fall. And it's a good fall. It's a fall into emotion. It's a fall into, you know, awareness or discovery. But you, you as a performer cannot fall. You need to hold your ground. Yeah. So I, I guess that's the bit I was sort of, you know, for me, there are some things that are so emotional that that I'm so close to and so owned that that when I do it I I just can't hold back and and I guess that's kind of here this this is your creation this is the thing all about you know how you've um uh, you know this this whole healing cycle 
and I guess I, I just find that really fascinating how you manage to hold on the precipice and, and not let yourself go. Because I had, you know, I had, I think I had sang that cycle by then at least like over hundreds of times. Mm. Uh, it was, it was so completely, utterly myself. And also like when I started coaching it, that was the really funny thing. I coached it for the English Diction with uh, Liz Upchurch, who's the head coach at the COC. Um, and, and she didn't really, she, I don't think she, she read the name of the composer or anything. So she, the first thing she said was like, wow, this composer really knows you. <laughs> It was like <laughs> it was like every interval seems to be you. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's fantastic. <laughs> and that's something admit- we so rarely find in classical music. Um, something that is tailor made for you, and that it, it made me think a lot about uh, like. Earlier composers who would write for specific singers and you spits for specific mm. singers, and you can always tell because it, the tessitura is so specific, the skills required are so specific, and so you can imagine that voice, you can recall that voice, and you're like, this was one single person, and I feel like, I feel like nowadays it's very important to have composers collaborate with singers or, or, or uh, musicians, creators, to understand the, the unique na- nature of their instrument and hence have um, a work that will be perfectly served by the performer and the performer will be perfectly served by the work. And this creates for a healing experience in itself. Because I told you earlier, my whole crisis was uh, triggered by performance anxiety and um, I, I, I got to, when I described that period that was really dark for myself I got to a point where I couldn't get on stage without having a panic attack it was really really bad and I, I, I for a while I thought maybe I need to quit you know I don't think I may maybe mm-hmm. I'm too sensitive for this work field and it's, it's too triggering for me um, and the biggest panic attack I had was at the end of the year party at the Atelier Lyrique at the Opera de Montréal. Uh, and it was a terrible one. <laughs> and I couldn't stop myself from like shaking and crying. And I was not able to get out. That's the, the weird thing with, with panic is some, sometimes you really just freeze. So I, I just stood there for, I think, what seemed like hours to me, it probably wasn't, but it seemed like hours. And I was sobbing publicly in a very like refined classical music uh, event. You know, it didn't feel like the appropriate thing to do. I most certainly should have hidden away. I was probably, you know, the, the talk of the town for a while, or that's what I figured I was. Maybe everybody forgot about it, but this happened at the exact location where we did the avant-première, so the mm. pre-creation oh, right. for the same people, actually. They say all published is good, so I'm sure it went. I'm sure people remembered you <laughs> from it. Like it's kind of one of those things. It's kind of sounds very diva-ish, you know, sort of thing, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, and I, I it could you know these parties. It's end of the year. It can always be, I said to everyone, oh, I'm just emotional. I'm just emotional. You know, it's the end of the year. People mm. are going away, all that. But I, I, I was just panicking. I felt, 
uh, I don't know what I felt. I felt like I was invisible and it was so odd. Mm. I was just, mm. I was there <laughs> very tall and I felt like no one could see me and I felt I couldn't see myself either. You know, it was just kind of, I didn't feel like I existed anymore and that triggered my panic attack. But it's also what led me to a fantastic uh, vocal discovery. Because when I finally stopped sobbing, <laughs> I went into a practice room because we were at the opera house. I went into a practice room with the acting coach of mine. And um, she, she just got me talking about technique and asked me about uh, how I would go about to teach someone to belt. You know, we use their mm. belting voice. Um, which is what you use in musical theater or pop music. or uh, And I, I thought about it. I said, oh, I think I wouldn't just have them call someone, like say, hey, you know, like a hey sound. And then she was like, okay, just she, she was guiding me. She was kind of encouraging yeah. me to self-teach the belt. Mm. And I and I had so much, at that moment, I had so much anger in me for the how powerless I had felt right before that I, I I started hitting notes that I never knew I had and I figured out a vocal path that I did not uh, anticipate I could find I, I must say when when I listened to your recording I must say it kind of blew me away I, I must admit just just the, uh, the sheer power that you you get the sheer sort of I'm not musical myself terribly I just love it but but the sound you generate and and kind of the force behind it and this it carries so much weight I would guess is the word for me that I think that's the thing it, it actually felt like it was like you were being you know almost grabbed and sort of this is what I'm feeling kind of thing which I think for me was really <laughs> a you know it was kind of amazing because you don't normally get that off a youtube video i quite admit you know it was just fantastic <laughs> how, how how you how that voice your voice came through so so it was it for me it was quite an experience listening to that thank you so much and i wanted to mention something too because you you mentioned earlier that you struggle with your own voice but just before we met i i went and listened to your last episode and the first thing i thought it was like oh my god these two have such the perfect voices for podcasting you <laughs> you your voice are really soothing and mesmerizing and i i could really listen to you both for hours so i'm looking forward to some more <laughs> oh, oh it's good we, we tend to yeah, get in yeah. uh loops as well and even when sammy and i are just talking uh not recording a podcast sometimes we end up talking for like 50 minutes an hour just kind of roaming on our own on our own so that, that's good i'm glad you, you know where we yeah. haven't roamed yet we haven't roamed yet which is something we always end up roaming to is is queer music we always end up with this we haven't done that yet have we jacob so no we we, we, which is unusual, so we have to aim down that, that route a little bit here. I, I mean, you know, when we talk to, to queer musicians and, and, and queer people in general, we always find there's like a kind of a, um, a commonality, I guess, Jacob? A, a sort of a... Yeah, I think, you know, the, the more... View. A common view is a good way to put it. I think, or, or I think there's there's obviously an element of like shared experience or shared understanding or uh, similar life outlook or or whatever but i think the more people we talk to the more we realize that there is uh, 
like beyond genre or instrument or style, if there's a thread that's connecting people in either process or view or style or something. And it's, um, it's like increasingly fascinating to, to hear about people's uh, like method of creation as queer people. And I, I mean, we always end up asking, I mean, it, it maybe is kind of like a, a blase or a bland question because we ask kind of the same question of everybody, but everybody's answer is always different. And this is why it's, it's kind of fascinating, but like, how do you, how do you view creation as a queer person? Like when you are singing, even, even not even as a composer, but like as a performer singing somebody else's music, how do you, how do you integrate your, your queer self into, into performance or does it? Yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> I think my performance allowed me to live my queerness publicly before I was ready to live it publicly because of the gender bending nature of being a mezzo soprano. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's so funny how classical music is, is so late on so many aspects. Uh, but on that aspect, we've been quite fluid, you know? <laughs> yes, it's amazing. Yeah. People yeah. always get so surprised. Yeah. 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 And so like, for example, like I told you earlier about my, my grandmother that I managed to talk with, my other grandmother that I'm very close to, I didn't, I, I couldn't find the courage. I, I mean, I asked my aunt about it because uh, she's, you know, she's Egyptian. She's from completely different culture. And um, I, I asked my aunt, do you think she, she could process this information? And she told me, you know, sometimes people will only process what they're ready to process. So you don't mm -hmm. need to yeah. to formally come out to her if it doesn't feel like it's something you can sustain energetically, because I felt very tired at that point. But the great thing was that I was performing Gertrude Stein on stage. <laughs> um, yes, at that exact Perfect. moment, the year I came out, <laughs> I performed Perfect. Gertrude Stein on stage. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was really cool. And so my grandmother came to see me. And that's actually a really moving um, moment for me because uh, um, she, she I, I managed to live my queerness in front of her, even though I wasn't ready to tell her. And then after the show, she really she she didn't pick up that it was a love story between two women. So then I, <sighs> I just knew at that point, you know, she's not ready to process that. But she she picked up that I was happy doing what I was doing, and that the the she she picked up on the the beauty of the singing and the music, and and it allowed me to live my truth in front of her. So that felt good. It's uh, you know you're you're quite right, and I think we don't give. I I mean I think I always come from a, a place of. Uh, classical music is uh, so backwards and so uh, behind and we need to be so hyper queer in everything we do because there, there's so many boundaries to push and we're not pushing them nearly far enough. And, you know, I, I thank you for bringing up that there are places in yeah. classical music where we have been very good. And, and, and you're quite right that the gender bending understanding of uh, mezzo roles and pants roles has long been a very queer space. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and it is... Uh, you know, I think there's there's something really maybe validating or, or valid in um, using those spaces and those roles as a method of, um, like you say, living your living your queer self on stage mm -hmm. or, or presenting 
like a queer identity through a character or through music or through performance that that is a really interesting way to access those things like those things for yourself and whether or not you uh like you anybody but like anybody takes it on and processes it or not even if it is just that presentation on stage of being in a queer space or a queer role like that's a really fascinating way to work through those yes and it's it's not i mean i don't want to say that it's uh militant or that it's doing a lot for the community it's it's mostly doing a lot for me it's more like my own process um but i do feel like it's some what i'm trying to do is to be vocal about my identity without putting it as a token and i think that's kind of a fine line and um and i mean sorry i don't know how to say that uh well but I guess one of the really important steps for me was when Melody Moore, the wonderful American soprano, came to visit us at the opera. And she she just casually, she mentioned her wife and then moved on to something else. Mm. And so it was this tiny little thing for her. It was just making it normal to talk about your wife in a meeting with young artists. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, it was the world. For me, it just felt like I could, sit a little taller for some reason you know it, it just meant so much so that's kind of the level of uh of presence i'm trying to bring is to not hide i don't think i'm so woke like <laughs> i think some people are so much more articulate than me to represent uh and understand uh, all assets of queer identities and so I don't think it's my place to be a verbal activist, but I think not hiding, it's definitely the first step. I, I think that is activism, actually. I think because <laughs> we've all hidden away so much in our lives in different ways that when we actually, you know, when we actually just show ourselves as being, you know, existing and, and actually, as you say, using the words like, you know, like my wife or my mm -hmm. husband, or you know, they're, they're, you know, there's a couple of op trans opera singers now. You know, these kind of things. When when all these people um, are there, it, it kind of normalizes it and 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 it makes it more accessible. And I think you're right there. Just just mentioning it, just being there, I think is the key. Yeah. I also think what I what I continually keep like learning and seeing, and and the more I talk with uh, people on this podcast with Sammy, and the more people I like just encounter in the world, like one of the things that I I'm taking on board is we we have very little understanding sometimes of what just being present does for anybody else and it's often much more profound and surprising than we give credence to that you know like like you say just like mentioning her wife like that to you had a really profound effect and even if you don't talk about it or uh, bring it forward as a a major part of your existence as a performer to somebody, that's a really important act yes. that, that you just yeah. being on stage and being there, even if nothing comes out of your mouth to be a, like a queer presence is a really yeah. important thing for somebody. I can guarantee it. Mm. Yes, I, I, I am quite sure of it too. And it feels um, very empowering to now talk about it publicly, talk, talk about um, all layers of my identity and the shifting forms and layers of my identity. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm trying to find something more clever to say, but I think that's kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that can but be it. Living, living, just living your true life. I think that's that's the thing, isn't it? If you if you can, if you if you can be there and live your true life and show you live your true life, whatever you mean by true mm -hmm. life, but your your life you, you you want to lead, then that that's it, really. That's that's the best you can do, I think, to some level. And yeah, I, I think yeah. you're quite right that, that in classical music, sometimes we have, and, and I, I am I'm guilty of it as well, there's there's this feeling of uh, like we need some, uh, you know, intense radicalism shift to, to classical music and I need to completely uh, change my understanding of what classical music is and present it in queer every possible aspect and be so like loud and vocal and proud. And I, you know, I firmly believe that on some levels, but, you know, there is also like a really powerful inside shift of uh, existing how it exists, but being the queer person that you are. And I, it doesn't need to be a, a protest every time. Sometimes there's a moment for a protest. Sometimes there's a moment to be like loud and yelly and, and really intense about it. And sometimes it's like singing Carmen just as a queer person. Like that's, yeah. that is plenty enough. That's a really powerful statement in itself. <laughs> yeah thank you for saying that you know i think uh one thing i wanted to add is that i i don't really use i think i use queer more than anything as a label to to define myself but um as uh my my attractions are fluid and i, I they're not defined by gender for a big part of my life, it was easy to hide. And that's, that's why I think it's not, it was, it didn't really feel like hiding. It was just kind of withholding a part of the information <laughs> to talk about that. And even if I'm currently in relationship with a man, you know, and at first when I started dating uh, a man again, uh, I felt almost ashamed. I felt mm. it, it, that was, it was really odd. It was, I went through this whole process of being vocal for the first time about my sexual identity. And, mm. and now I'm back at being with a guy. You've let <laughs> but, the side down. That's what they always say. You've let the side down. Look what you've done. You yes. know, this kind of thing. It's, it's, but this, yeah. at this point, I'm kind of at the step of saying, but being queer is so much more than my choice of partner. It's also just the way I look at life and and the fact that i'm not attracted to this person because he's a guy <laughs> it's, it's just because he's a wonderful person yeah i kind of i kind of always feel we we have um you know we have so many labels I mean, this is probably getting off topic a bit but we have so many labels and we try and even in the queer community we try and push people into a particular box and we say you have to be X, Y, Z, or are you this, you know, are you bi, are you yes. this, are you gender fluid? And it, and it kind of, it's kind of useful to maybe help people understand where you are, but it, but it is kind of ridiculous as well in a way. I don't, I mean, that yeah. way it's kind of, you know, we try and, we try and always say, you know, and it doesn't allow people to, to experiment and try and grow and be, you know, this kind of thing. And, and so I think, you know, I think some point our community has to go, Okay, let's let's try and you know blur out the labels more. It doesn't really matter yeah. where you are in that. It's just kind of different. Yeah, I mean, sometimes sometimes it's important to have the label for. I just uh, oh my god, this is such a terrible metaphor, but I'm gonna go with it, and then we can edit it out if it it's yeah. too harsh. But you know, when you're you're going through a if if you're going through a hard phase, like you're you're feeling sad or depressed or something like at the moment where you're able to name 
um, I have a burnout or, you know, I, or I broke my leg or the moment you're able to identify what hurts, uh, it's like you can start a conversation about it. Yes. So I think to me, that's what labels are, even though I, I didn't want to compare queerness to a disease. That's the weird metaphor. Yeah, it is true, though. I think it is kind of true. Certainly in my own case, where I could suddenly, you know, to be able to use the label of being trans or being a woman, trans woman, suddenly made all the difference. Being able to actually tell people that actually went from from you know it suddenly opened up and it suddenly you know so so i think you're absolutely right you you do need them at some point it's kind of as long as it doesn't define you so narrowly that it it, it yes. kind of keeps you in a box you don't need to be in exactly that's that's so much the way i feel about about them but so i understand the need and i understand the need for specificity too uh because it, it there's nothing more hurtful than uh conversation that's not specific i find because you don't feel seen it's like mm -hmm. if i if i tell you a compliment um like you just performed you gave it your all and i just tell you oh wow that was uh, very special or that was uh, you know that was interesting uh that's <laughs> it was fascinating. nice it was nice you know, it, was, it was, nice. was nice or um yeah you know it's just it, if it feels like you could have said that to anyone then mm. it, it will hurt my feelings more than if you tell me mm, you were a little fat. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's, I, I would rather you, I would rather feel you actually paid attention and noticed something unique. And, and then, you know, sometimes we just really don't have anything to say and it's fine too. But I find that non-specificity can be very painful. So I, I understand the need for specific language when we're talking about our identity. Uh, mm. It's just, yeah, you don't want it to become a box another box you know yeah actually it's kind of interesting what you just said about the the, the sort of response there to, to your music we've had this kind of conversation before if you remember jacob with a few other musicians who said they'd rather actually have somebody came up and say to them i didn't like your music or i didn't mm -hmm. like it I, you know it's fine but it's not for me rather than go yeah Oh yeah, that was very nice. Thanks. Yeah, great. See you again, kind of thing. Because it actually is more yeah. honest and and more about they felt something. It may not be for them, but they felt something. So exactly. And then we can start a conversation. It's like, why didn't you like it? What's what what yeah. what was the non-entry point? You know, where did it break for you? Mm. Thank you, Rose. Thank you so much for for being our guest here today. It's been fantastic. Thank you for having me. And, and good luck with the rest of your European little tour, mini tour. And uh, we look forward to hearing some new things from you in, when you get back to Canada. <laughs> Thanks a lot. So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jacob and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music was courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.